Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. 53106 is our text number that will cost you 30 cents. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter or send us an email to afternoon at newstalk.com. Joanna Fortune joins us uh, once again for our parenting slot. Good afternoon to you, Good Joanna. Good afternoon, Sean. Here is your first question. I'm pregnant with my second child, but my seven-year-old son says he doesn't want a sibling. He was raised as an only child. I got pregnant with him when I was in my early 20s, but didn't stay with his father. And he was never involved in raising him. It has always been just the two of us and my son was very much attached to me. I've been married to my new partner for a few years now and my son gets along pretty easily with him. But now that I'm pregnant, my son is worrying that I will focus entirely on the new baby. He actively says he doesn't want a baby in the house and he's not even sure if he'd be able to be in the same room. How can I console my firstborn that my love and attention for him wouldn't lessen? Oh my goodness, I know. But I suppose when you're reading that out loud, what I'm thinking immediately is I wonder how this mom is feeling about having another baby. That it's not just the seven-year-old who's experiencing this monumental change to this dynamic they've had between them and this intense relationship. And I think sometimes we worry in having a second or subsequent child that we couldn't possibly have as much love as we had for our first child to give this second child. And it can bring up all of those feelings. And I think that transition from having one child to the second child is often overlooked with, oh sure, look, it'll be grand, get Mm. on with it. Um, but, you know, just just attune to that yourself, you know, how do you feel about it? Are you feeling a bit nervous and worried? Because actually he's seven years old and he is your only child this far. OK, yeah. but for a few years, you're all just the two of them. Yeah, but only for a few years. I mm. mean, he's seven, but she's also married a few years now. So you and your son have actually managed to adjust to bringing someone new into your circle, if yeah. you like, yeah. already. And it might be no harm to remind him of that. And one little practical way to do that, because when you're seven, that's quite an abstract concept to get your head around, is the three of you stand in a circle holding hands and then you all just take a step back out and you show how the circle got bigger. And now you can accommodate someone else coming in, but everyone still has their place. You know, another way of doing it is mum and dad could drop their hands when the baby comes and incorporate the baby's crib and make your circle around. So the circle is big enough for all of us. Mm. You still have your place. You haven't lost anything. It's the circle that got bigger. We didn't take anything from you. And I think that can be a nice experiential way just to remind him he's not losing, he's gaining. And I'm not saying that's magic and he's going to feel you know, super, I'm delighted to have this baby. But at the same time, your son doesn't get to make this call. You know, no matter how he feels about yeah. it, this is not something that he gets to have a say in. And this whole, I don't even know if I can be in the same room as the baby is just so dramatic. And actually going, well, do you know what? You could try. You could try standing at the door when the baby's there. You could try taking a step in and standing inside the door. And if the baby's cry is too loud, you could step outside and come back in when it feels comfortable. So you're acknowledging the hesitancy, but you're not feeding into it going, oh my goodness, he doesn't even think he can be in the same room. What are we going to do? Mm. You stay very practical and grounded with it. I do think it's important that you let him talk about what he's worried about. Don't decide for him it's because he's thinking he won't have all of me. Let him talk about what he thinks is going to happen and how he thinks the family is going to change. A couple of really practical things that you can do. Obviously, you're going to involve him with the baby. 
at seven, he's not going to just maybe stand there holding wipes and nappies like a three-year-old might, you know, and find that really interesting when you bring a baby home. But just, you know, involving in maybe you could do this for me. Can you heat up this? Can you do that? You know, just giving him practical jobs to do. I think you also want to talk about the new baby as their own person, as a real baby. Babies love this. Babies really don't like that. Babies are very sensitive to. Babies love to hear this. They love to be held. They love music. I wonder what kind of music we could play for the baby and involve him in making a playlist for the baby mm-hmm. that then can be played. Um, you know, that so the involvement ages up as the child ages up as well. I think you have to accept that right now he's struggling and empathise with his struggle. But that doesn't mean you have to be pulled in to rescue him from the struggle and fix it for him. Yeah. You can empathise and you can name, you know, the whole, all of the good, you know, you can emphasise the good by naming all the things you can still do together. You know, you can emphasise, but we'll still be doing this and this. And I think something that we often forget with older children who are going to become a sibling after a long period of time of just themselves is it's important to build up their friendships, their interests, their hobbies, their life outside of the family as well. Because if I don't want to be around you and the crying baby, I want to make sure I've got my pal next door that I can go and play with and have fun with. Because it's egocentric as well at Mm. this age, you know, so that I know actually I'll have fun, I'll be okay. And I think that's something really important. And also speaking of ego, your dad, right, you know, but boost his ego when the baby comes in saying, do you know, I think this baby only smiles like that when you're in the room. Mm-hmm. I think that's special for you. And don't underestimate <laughs> that. There are books. I mean, look, at aren't there always books for everything? But I think with books about new babies coming into families, we have to be a little careful because some of them are quite negative in focus that it's always the older child having a struggle with the baby. So you might want to just screen a few of the books you're looking at because it is preferable that they'd have a positive outlook and positive story. Um, there is a lovely book. He's a, he, I don't think you're ever too old for this book. You know, I think it's nice. You Were the First um, by Patricia McLaughlin. Mm-hmm. It's an old book. You know, it talks about you were my first and this is what we did. And it can be a nice little story for the two of you to share together. Um, but I think this will work out. But you don't, you know, you could have a wobble, but it's about holding that line. Yeah, because I suppose it's not going to it's not going to be a matter of calming his fears now and then the problem is solved. Oh, it's no. going to be it's going to be there for quite some time afterwards. It's probably. about adjusting because yeah. you're actually not going to solve this. This baby's coming. Yeah. You know, so you you are allowed to struggle with it, but this is about supporting his adjustment to it as well. And a lot of it is about that reassurance. You know, it's mm. it's been me and mom against the world. And, you know, I managed to adjust to a new a new step parent in the family or, you know, mom having a husband in the family. And now you want me to do it again with a baby? No, I don't want to. And it's about, yeah, that that must be tricky, but, you know, we can do it. Uh, Though this would be a situation where her uh, her partner, you know, steps in, at least in as far as to allow her to have some time with the son. And both of them to have time with him, actually. And I think that's really important as well. That that's why I think building up his interests are important. But every day, even if it's sitting down and having a little hot chocolate and a a chat about the day together or hot chocolate and doing a jigsaw together while dad has the baby, don't underestimate that. He's going to have those moments of meeting with mum, getting out for a walk together, really helpful. But also that the other parent, dad, can also step in and take him out and do whatever activities he likes to do with him as well while the baby's being tended to. Right, next one is a bit of a bombshell, I imagine. My mother-in-law constantly questions my parenting decisions. I'm vegetarian and try to keep my family on a balanced diet. While my mother-in-law is fully aware of my dietary choices, she doesn't seem to accept them. When my kids, age five and seven, are over-visiting, 
She feeds them meat on purpose. My husband isn't vegan, so doesn't object to his mother's options, actions. But for me, this is about the ethical nature of the decision. I don't want my kids to feel torn between me and their grandmother. But I don't think they should consume meat until they understand fully its origins. They're now asking for chicken for dinner. Should I put my foot down and let them decide what they want? Oh, oh dear. <laughs> I mean, there's so much here. First of all, my husband isn't vegan and he doesn't object. Sorry now, it's not about he's not vegan. He could object yes, of to the disrespect. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so he needs to step in, step up with this one. Um, because this can't be a battle about daughter-in-law versus mother-in-law because it's not in anyone's interests. I think, you know, for me, this is about respect. More than anything about vegetarianism or veganism or any of that, this is about respect. It's about understanding and it's a little about fear because I'm wondering if mother-in-law is of a generation, of a viewpoint that, my goodness, children will be sick if they don't Mm, eat meat and children will be unwell and she feels she's acting in the grandchildren's best interests and that she's helping you against your wishes. I'm positively reframing like mad here, but you know what I mean? (laughs) That if her motivation is coming from a good place in her heart of hearts. The delivery is with a sledgehammer, but the intention is good. So maybe it's about reassuring her that you're very, you've read up on this, you're very informed and that your children have a very healthy, well-balanced diet. And ultimately, raising your children vegan or vegetarian is a parental choice like any other. Yeah. So this is no different to how you would react if she was undermining any other parental choice you were making. Therefore, you... And your husband, as a united front together, this doesn't have to feel like you're going into battle. It really shouldn't. But you should be able to go and have a mature conversation with her and reaffirm the boundaries around parental choices and decisions. And I know full well that that's really difficult. You know, but it is, I mean, if you don't, then you're going to feel bitter. Your children are getting a mixed message. You're being undermined. You're overtly gritting your teeth but tolerating this what next mm. I think it's boundaries are really really important in families and relationships in general I think you have to do this I also think that applies to your children so it's quite okay for you to tell your children that you don't cook meat in your house and there won't be meat for meals in your home or their lunch boxes and that's just not something you do and it is okay for you to say we don't have chicken in this house. That's not going to happen here. And if they're like, oh, but granny gives it to us. Yeah, I'm going to talk to granny about that. But that's granny's house, not this house. And you're holding that line. I don't see this getting better if you don't talk to her. And I'm just wondering on that, you know, when the children are visiting granny, she's feeding them the meat. I'm, and again, I'm wondering, I'm kind of assuming, but also questioning, do you send vegetarian food with, with your them. children? I was just wondering about that because Mammy mightn't be in a position to, you know, she just thinks you cook dinner, but no chops with it kind of thing. hundred percent. That's, that's not and what it is. I also think, you know, that if you're making this parental choice for your children, you know, that is your choice. But it doesn't stand to reason that the other person they're visiting will know enough about vegetarian food or to feel comfortable or competent cooking it, um, cooking a proper meal for them. And it's easy like, well, look at in here, it's one dinner for everyone. That's what they're getting. Mm. So, you know, if you're listening and saying, no, I do send food, that's quite different. Okay. If not, yeah. that's a very practical change you could do. Yeah, I just wonder when she visits the in-laws, what does the mother-in-law dish, dish up to her? Marriott biscuits. I, you know, 
<laughs> there is like an Irish vegetarian and someone who eats chicken, you know, uh, so there can be a bang of that. And I suppose, the, yeah. see, the mother might think it's a, it's a fad and, and uh, you do go away Absolutely, these modern parenting ideas. Yeah. And it could be just a misunderstanding. It also, though, could be concern and fear-based, misguided, misplaced mm. fear. But it might be, my God, those growing children need meat. You know, it could simply be that attitude and you can gently yet firmly challenge that. Yeah. Meanwhile, the husband is going, I'm off to the pub. Do you have a chat? Oh, Bye. Vegan. This doesn't apply to me. It <laughs> yeah, does apply it does, to him. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, my younger sister is my kid's favourite aunt. She's always been an important part of their life. She was diagnosed with cancer a number of years ago and recovered. But we recently heard that the cancer has come back and she fears the worst. How can I break this news to my 10 year old twins? and their eight-year-old brother. My sister plans to start treatment soon and they may see the effects. So I want to prepare them. Mm, this is just sad. And I'm mm. just so sorry your sister's unwell again. You know, when someone has already experienced a terrible trying illness like that and come through it, to have it a second time, it's just, it just feels so awful and unfair. So, you know, I think what's really important is that as you're adjusting to this news about your sister, that you take the time and space to do that as well, because that's so much to take on board as a grown-up. Up. And especially because you're all fearing and maybe anticipating the worst possible prognosis here, it can be, feel a bit tweet to go, oh, you know, stay in the moment because actually you're allowed to feel what you feel in the moment. Um, and if that is, I'm really scared, I feel very worried, feel that, feel it together, process it together so that you can then get clarity of how, messaging and what you're going to say to the children mm. because children are very much in the moment. It's how they operate best. And I think that's what you're going to have to do is try and stay in the right here, right now. What do we know for sure? And that's what you're and what do we know to be true right now, because you're certainly not going to lie to them. Don't make any promises or any wish fulfillment stuff yeah. with them because it's just going to make any subsequent conversation you might have to have really difficult. I think, you know, and they're also at an age and they're very close to her that you can just say it as it is, but appropriately, like auntie is sick and it's a serious kind of sick. And it's the kind of sick that doctors are working really hard to help her feel a bit better. And that means she's going to have to take a special medicine that's going to make her more tired than she used to be. And her hair might even fall out. It might be nice for us to make her a care parcel, a care package, and we can put in all the things that we know make her smile, that she likes, and we might buy her a nice headscarf. And let the kids then focus on what they could put into this care box. You get a little box. Don't judge any random stuff they want to put in because it's coming from a place of connection for them. And I think that could be that you're telling them the news and then you're redirecting the focus to how can we support her, take care of her, nurture her and mind her. Mm. And as the story changes you will update the narrative for them. Also be aware that your local cancer support groups, I think the cancer support groups all around the country are amazing. I think they do tremendous work as voluntary organisations and it would be well worth linking in with wherever you're based, your local cancer support group, because they have great resources for children, um, for children who are affected by a family member's diagnosis. And they might also be able to point you in the direction of some emotional supports and resources. So I would encourage you to do that. Yeah, indeed. Ah, the poor things. It's, uh, it's going to be a struggle uh, for them. Yeah. Uh, just going back to uh, the uh, uh, little fella who was a sibling on the way and is a bit anxious about it. Peter uh, says, uh, when my brother was three, our sister was born. He resented her immediately as he was no longer going to be the baby. It all worked out 40 years later than the best of friends. Well, we're hoping for a kind of shorter time scale and sol- solving this problem. Uh, Kean says, uh, I, now this is interesting, says, I decided to become vegetarian 
I didn't tell my kids until months in. They hadn't realised that they hadn't eaten meat with me for that long, which was great. They eat meat with their mother, and if we go out or visit anyone, they can choose. They will decide themselves when they are older. Uh, which is an interesting uh, take Absolutely, on it. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, uh, kind of a middle path there. Anyway, uh, you are listening to The Moncrief Show on News Talk. We do have to take a break. After that, a 10-year-old, that's racist. 53106 is our text number. That will cost you 30 cents. You are listening to The Moncrief Show on News Talk. Joanna is still with us. Next question is this. My 10-year-old is a sweet kid and we brought him up to respect everybody no matter how different they differ from him. Recently, though, I overheard him and one of his friends using racial slurs and talking disparagingly about people of other ethnicities. I did, of course, confront him about this and he was very sheepish and he really seemed quite ashamed and contrite. However, when I asked him to tell me where he learned this language, he just said he didn't remember and he has steadfastly maintained this line since. I have met the other boy's parents a few times and they are a little rough around the edges. They've never exactly gone there, but I would say that uh, that uh, they say in private differs substantially from what they say in public. How do I deal with this? Their son is a lovely boy and I don't really believe in banning my son from hanging out with his friends or punishing the son for the actions of his parents. Oh, yikes. Yikes, yeah. Yeah. So the fact that he is, you know, I don't remember where I heard this language and holding Uh, that line. For me, that shows recognition. Yeah. He recognises I've done something wrong. This is a problem. And there is a dose of, you know, guilt associated with this. You can work with that. Okay, I Mm. think that's a good starting point. First and foremost, with the I don't know, I'm inferring the type of language, but I would come down heavy on the language that you've heard. Like you want to call that out very clearly. This is a red line issue in this family. You don't cross this line. And that language is not going to be acceptable in here or outside. You can't represent our family with that language. Mm. So you want to be really clear about it, regardless of where he heard it or who else says it, because, you know, he's not allowed to. That's your focus here. I mean, I think you could get drawn into this other boy, this other boy's parents. Do you know what? You, there will always be another kid and another kid's parents. That's unfortunately the world we live in. There will always be people who are going to do and say things that do not align with our beliefs and do not align with a good, kind society. So your focus has to be on really embedding this in your own son and empowering him to be able to stand up when a friend in his group says something like this and go, hey, that's not cool. You can't say that. That language is not okay. Don't talk about people like that. That's what we're looking for here because he is going to hear things. It could be racial language. It could be sexually discriminant-based language. It could be anything about bodies, any kind of language like that in general about sizes of bodies or shapes of bodies. It could be anything what he has to find is his voice to say, no, this isn't OK. Don't yeah. do this in front of me. And then once you've kind of come down heavy on the language, do move into a more empathic space. You know, how would he feel if someone used that kind of language to describe him or his family? And now how might the people he's talking about feel? And why would you do this? I, I always think, you know, studies show us consistently that by five years old, our kids can show signs of racial bias. Okay. Wow. Well, we've got systemic racism. We have to own up to that. We're born into an inherently racist system. And so our children, they they pick this up, they acquire this and they can show signs of racial bias by that young age. Mm. So for me, the earlier you start a conversation about racism, about respect for each other, about 
whatever issue it's about, including race, but not just race, because actually you think, oh, God, they're too young. They won't get it. But really what we're saying is, oh, I don't know how to say it. I don't feel like I have the language to describe this. But the, you know, if we ignore the topic, it doesn't protect our children from it. It actually leaves them exposed to the bias without a script to call it out. Yeah. And that's what's really, really important here. I think you, you, you just have to talk openly about it and start a conversation with him as well, saying, do you know, when people use this kind of language really casually as if it doesn't matter, it really does matter because when people normalise this language, it can result in people being attacked attacked for the colour of your skin or attacked for the way you look and call out that's not fair that's not right I mean what do you think about that and really get him critically thinking and critically engaging with it himself Mm. and help and you can role play out you know role play out with him calling out friends so hey I'm your friend and I'm going to say something what would you say back to me okay good start now you be the friend and I'll tell you what I'd say back Mm. and you do it in role I think that's the way to do it yeah and also in this day and age I'd be very surprised if he doesn't know any other kids yeah I'm assuming yeah yeah, I'm assuming he of course he would and you can point to real people and go you know and you know how would you feel about your friend being talked about Mm. like that yeah absolutely yeah it's kind of astonishing Uh, I'm kind of slightly surprised I must say I kind of thought their generation not that they're, you know, blameless uh, and, 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 you know, kids say stupid things, but I thought their generation would be a bit more attuned to yeah, this. Yeah, you, you know, kids also mirror things that they hear and mm. they parrot things as often when they don't understand what they're saying. So they've heard a term, they've heard language used. I'm not saying by the this other boy's parents, but they've heard it used somewhere by someone. It doesn't make full sense to me. So I try it out and I test yeah. people's reactions. So often they don't know the meaning or the seriousness of what they're saying. And that's why coming down very clearly and seriously is helpful on this from the outset. Yeah. I thought I had raised my 16-year-old daughter well. I'm a single father and I originally hailed from Ballymun. I was lucky enough to have been quite successful in my career and I bought a house in Sandymount, nice for you, before my daughter (laughs) was born. As such, she grew up there and went to a private school and had a very different upbringing to me. A few months back, though, she had her boyfriend over to the house and I was chatting to the two of them. He went to a public school and he mentioned this in passing. My daughter responded, I thought all schools were private, which was bad enough. But then she said a few frankly insulting things to him that were apparently said in jest. Worse still, she has since broken it off with him and I overheard her mocking his background with her friends. I'm very embarrassed about the whole thing. I had no idea this was her outlook and I fear that my own behaviour over the years has contributed to her ignorance of her own privilege. I probably joked about my upbringing and not really tried to connect her with my old life. How do I go about remedying my failure to educate her properly? You know, it's t- you do everything right and you've done it wrong. I you know, know, isn't this a good example yeah. of that? I sometimes think with teenagers, if you come at this in a way of sit down there till I give you a list of things you've done and said wrong and how ignorant they were and how offensive they were, that teenager is going to switch off, disengage yeah. and count down the seconds to go, yeah, you're right, sorry about that and off they go. I'd be tempted to use a more paradoxical approach here and rather than just... I'm not saying don't call out her behaviour, but rather than just doing that, take responsibility yourself from the outset and do it like in an over articulated way. So you're going to say, you know what, sit down there. I owe you an apology. 
Okay, because the first thing she's going to say is, why? What did you do? What are you apologising for? And then go on to say something like, you know, well, you know, I heard what you were saying to your friends about your your boyfriend or ex-boyfriend. And it made me realise that I I haven't done a good job parenting you. I didn't parent you in a way that taught you about inclusivity, about tolerance, about equality. I've let you down. And now you're speaking like you're better than other people. And I'm just so sorry that I let that happen. I'm going to do better. And one of the ways I'm going to do better is I'm going to start calling you out on things like that when you do it. Mm. So you're going mea culpa here, like I'm so, so sorry, but I'm still naming what you've done and I'm flagging to you, I'm going to be marking your card that I'm going to call this out. Talk to her about it. She's 16 years old. Talk to her about your own background. Talk to her about the community you come from, Mm. your family, your experiences, the good, the bad. There's always good in there and a great sense of community that you've come from and how proud you are to come from where you do and that you've made choices in your life that now you live in a different part of Dublin. But that doesn't mean that you have cut off. Now, maybe you have to some extent. Let's I know. Be it would honest. be nice if she had like a few aunties and uncles and cousins. Uh, and, it would uh, be really you know. nice. And, you know, at a minimum to go around and visit the house you grew up in, the place you grew up in, you know, and just see where you played, where you kicked a ball around, things like that to actually go through that with her. And I think, you know, you want to include in that, that in your adult life, you've also come across people who look down on others for no reason other than ignorance and how uncomfortable it's made you. Because you want to just how do you know what you don't know is what I'm yes, thinking. Yeah, and yeah. how does she know that what she's doing is really offensive and wrong if she sees people who look like her and talk like her and come from places like her and live in houses like her and go to the same clubs and hobbies like her and her world is quite a bubble. Mm, and it, yeah. yes, it's a bubble of privilege, but how do you know that until you know that? So a big part of me is like, you know, she's 16. Does she have a job? because it'd be really nice if she could get one. Um, Certainly, does she volunteer? And again, that's really important. Mm. I think especially teenagers, but kids should be volunteering. I think it shows them that the world is bigger than them, that they're part of a system bigger than them and that our world is not fair and it's not equal, but we all have a responsibility to pushing it towards more equality and that everybody deserves respect. Rather than you sit and lecture her on that, get her out there seeing it, living it and breathing it. Yeah, it must be. I can I can kind of feel for this man. I do too. Like, you know, that, that it's not a great feeling sometimes when you see your kids develop into when they're approaching adulthood and you go, God, I wouldn't like you if I met you in a pub. Or I mean, that's an awful... Like, and I, I think, know it's an awful thing to say, but like, no, if but I just heard you saying feel, that. Yeah. You know, like, and I think that what there's clearly so much good in this girl, you know, and she's clearly doing well and has friends and she's mm. all of this opportunity afforded to her. But she also has to recognise what just that... how lucky she is. Just yeah. how lucky she is. But again, like, Sean, how do you, you only know that you're lucky when you recognise that the world isn't... I mean, to, to actually at 16 think all schools are private is quite a statement. It's astounding. Like it's shocking. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Right, final question. I have two young girls, six and nine. My eldest has a mild intellectual disability. My younger daughter is becoming more aware of the situation and I'm conscious that she feels like I'm giving more attention to my oldest child. I want to encourage my youngest to be more supportive of her elder sister as they progress through education particularly. But I struggle to explain how to do this. And as much as I want to give them both equal attention, it's difficult as my eldest needs a lot of my time. How do I meet both of their needs and help my 
my youngest daughter to better understand the situation. Uh, oh, that's a tough one. It is tough and, and the second child is only six and I think it's important to hold that in mind that at six it's going to be hard for me to understand what it's like for my nine-year-old sister because developmentally I'm not there myself. Mm. So, you know, just manage your expectations around that. But really this is about you know, how do I explain to a young child equity versus equality or fairness? You know, we often, you know, kids are great, especially sibling kids at that refrain. That's not fair. This isn't fair. You gave him this or her that. And I think if we go down the route of I want to split myself in such a way that I'm giving each of my children exactly the same, we're actually not being equitable because nobody's needs are exactly the same. And what you're trying to do here is that you you want to show her as well as tell her that what you're going to aim for is that you give each of them what they need as best you can and that her sister has some extra needs because her brain works a bit differently. Mm. So she's going to need me to do this, this and this with her. You don't need me to do that. And what's fair is you both have your needs met. And that's what I mean, because this is up with siblings all the time, right? You know, the end this, he got this and I got that and I didn't. But actually, once all of our needs are met as best we can, that's what we're aiming for. I think you have to explain what she might know, but not know is Mm. my sister needs a bit of extra help. That's why my mom does more for her. And by giving her a narrative within which to place that observation, she might go, oh, that makes sense. That's fair enough. Mm. And I think, you know, that you can actually allow her to maybe sit alongside you guys. If I'm just thinking, for example, if you're spending extra time with homework or a little bit of extra tuition, that your six-year-old can sit there and say, you can stay with us while we do this, but this is what we're going to be doing. And look at after a few minutes, she'll be like, I'm all right, I'll go off and do my own thing Mm. and leave you at it. But that you're available to her. But I think it's about creating an understanding that her sister has extra needs and that's why she gets a little bit of extra time. I suppose she's helping by cooperating with exactly that, that. Well, yeah, uh, because she needs to help her sister too. Joanna, a joy as always. Uh, thanks very much Thank for coming you. into us, Joanna Fortune. There you are listening to the Moncrief Show on News Talk. We're going to take a break after that. Why walking was a huge sport. Moncrief on News Talk, brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again.